Well, them goats are out again. Yes, indeed, they are. Somebody needs to fix this gate. Hey, this is Bill Gray. And John Chapman. And we are two old goats. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Today's topic is going to be collective bargaining. Uh, a lot of information in the news about prices and wages and that sort of thing. And we decided that uh, we would take a few moments to talk about the term collective bargaining. Some housekeeping out of the way. Uh, you certainly can uh, chat with us on Gmail at twooldgoats at gmail.com. That's T-O-O like also. We also have a Facebook page, which is Two Old Goats at Facebook. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. Um, and we are growing to uh, uh, your friendly neighborhood podcast dealer in your neighborhood. So uh, that'll give you um, our company stuff or our podcast stuff. Also, a disclaimer going forward. Um, John and I both are union members. Uh, I'm a, a member of IATSE, which is the uh, International Alliance of Stage and Theatrical Workers. Uh, John, you are retired from? The International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, Iron Ship Builders, Blacksmiths, Forgers, and Helpers. AFL-CIO. So I just want to put in there that that we are members of a trade union, uh, different trade unions, but still members of, a, of the local. And uh, we do believe in collective bargaining. Uh, one of my uh, uh, when I talk about collective bargaining, uh, uh, my partner's family are lifelong union people. Uh, uh, her father was the business agent um, for the, their local. Both of uh, her, his brothers um, were involved in the union. And one of her brothers asked me one day and he says, well, Bill, what do you think of unions? And I said, I like collective bargaining. And that's where we are today. And uh, this is uh, your neck of the woods, John. And um, you have a place to get us started, I believe. Yeah. I want to talk about how we came to find the National Labor Relations Act. The, the, the act, as we'll call it, it actually came from the National Labor Board that was established in 1933 by President Roosevelt. Uh, part of the National, it was part of the National Recovery Act, which was later found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So in 1935, President Roosevelt again created the National Labor Relations Act as we call it today before it was it's the uh, former was called the old board now we just call the national labor relations board just the board um it was created in 35 and what it states and people just don't believe this it, congress passed it in 1935 making clear that it is the policy of the United States to encourage collective bargaining by protecting workers' full freedom of association. It also protects workplace democracy by providing employees at private sector workplaces the fundamental right to seek better working conditions and designation 
of representation without fear of retaliation. That's a quote from the National Labor Relations webpage. And so right there, it tells that the government's policy is that people should have collective bargaining. So when it was the act was established, it was called the Wagner Act. It's uh, 29 CFR Chapter 7 in subsections 2. It established there was a lot of labor strife going on during that period of time. So Roosevelt administration put in the act to allow workers to have a way to settle what was going on. One of the big cases back then was called McKay Radio versus the board. And what happened, the employees in McKay went on strike and the company decided, well, we'll just replace those workers. Well, the employees or the union guy, not union guys, but the employees filed an unfair labor practice with the board. And the board said, okay, you guys did wrong by replacing these workers because they were on a legitimate strike. They have the right to do that. The unfair labor practice was adjudicated through the board and the board said, you got to rehire the workers. Well, McKay didn't want to do that. They filed suits and they just went back and forth in the courts forever. And they finally found that McKay had to rehire the workers because they wrongfully had terminated them by rehiring other workers. Well, this went on during the 1938-39 and that sort of upset a lot of people in Congress, especially the Republican parts. So they amended the act. And it was that the amendment was called Taft-Hartley. And when Taft-Hartley was passed, <clears throat> President Truman vetoed it. It was the House and the Senate was controlled by Republicans. Truman vetoed it, and they were able to override his veto. And what the Taft-Hartley Act does, it outlawed closed shops. Back then, you could say, if you want to work here, you've got to be in the union. Well, the Taft-Hartley Act says, no, you don't have to join the union, except if a majority of the employees voted for it, then you could have a closed shop. And it gave authority to the president to appoint a board of inquiry, which we're talking about right now with the rail strike about to happen and the the board of inquiries to investigate disputes and to get the federal implementation of they can force a contract on you and one of the other things that the Taft-Hartley Act did it made it so that unions could not use union dues to give money to political organizations. And one of the odd things, it happened, it required union officers to deny under oath any communist influence. Now, that was the big communist scare because this was in 47, 48, or when it was passed. So you had the crazy guy from Minnesota that was running the Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, the McCarthy's are back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he's a bigger drunk as the one from 
Wisconsin was. Well, it's so, it, it, it's not can it, it's not uh, uh, being a good name. It is causing <laughs> a lot of stress. It is. So that's basically the history of the act and what we go about to do to have collective bargaining. And the way collective bargaining actually works is that if you have a union in place, then your contract has expiration dates. So it's whatever the members have voted on to say our contract is going to be three years, four years, five years, whatever. Contract comes around for negotiations. During that time, the union and the union and a union representative, for, usually from the international, comes in and we sits down with employees and we determine what they want in the contract, what changes they need, what's not working in the contract, and what they really want to get a better contract. So everything's on the table. Anything that has to do with wages, hours, and working conditions is a permissive subject of bargaining. So if you want to go to the table and say, we want to have an, a dollar an hour pay raise, and the company says, hey, guys, you know, we really can't do this dollar an hour in pay, but we can do it. Uh, we can slice up that piece of pie by giving you paying a little bit more for health care and some of this. It's what the members go to the table with, and then what the membership or their committee they have formed go to the table to bargain what they want, what they want to get out of the contract. Well, uh, uh, you know, our, what is it, the, the, the motto of the United States, e pluribus unum, one out of many. Um, I, I think that when we're talking about collective bargaining, uh, the the intent is uh, to level the playing field. Is is that not correct? That's right. And and then both sides come in. Now you know we can look across history, and you know there are outliers of all kinds. Um, but it, there's something to be said for being able to say, "I want this," or "We want this." And, uh, you know, the collective we on it, um, again, uh, it levels, to me, it levels the playing field. And it it also tries to keep it business. It's not personal. I mean, th this is business. And, you know, we represent them, you represent you. And uh, let's try to make this work. And it's, uh, I, I don't think that people are aware that, that wages are not the only thing that gets negotiated. Uh, I mean, uh, and benefits safety it, uh, is a big thing. Uh, I mean, collective bargaining, would it be safe to say that, um, and the trade unions, you know, put a damper on child labor in this country. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, the 40 hour week, uh, is a result of collective bargaining, um, eight hour day, uh, overtime, uh, safety issues. You can't work for a certain amount of time, uh, because it's, it's a safety issue and we, we want everyone to be safe. It, it, you know, it's not all about, you know, $25 an hour to screw lug nuts on, um, an assembly line. I, I, I think that's a, a, a bad rap sometimes, that that happens with collective bargaining 
is that, you know, uh, out of many, one. And it, it just, it gives you a better focus. That's that's my feeling. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to wander here, but, uh, I, it, you know, it'd be very easy to say, no, we can't do that. But when it's, you know, the entire labor force, the rank and file is saying, you know, we really don't want to do that then things change. I, I mean, there are some stories that you told about being on the road and, uh, you know, you would talk to uh, people in a shop and uh, you you may not be able to, uh, to get them to organize, but um, it was pretty common that when when you left, that basic hint of collective bargaining um, helped them. It does. I mean, just the, the fear the company has when a union comes in and starts to get cards signed, which are cards are basically authorization for representation that every union uses. And to get to an election by the National Labor Relations Board, you have to have 30% of the employees uh, to sign cards. Now, you can't win an election with 30%, but when the company usually the uh, company only finds out that you're trying to organize a place when you file a petition. If you've been able to keep it quiet and your employees are scared, they're going to keep it quiet. So the uh, the company finds out when you file a petition and they go a little bit nuts and they'll do all kinds of things. Some illegal, some are not, but basically they put out rumors through their supervision that, Hey, you don't need a union here. You know, we'll take care of you. Uh, we just need to make the union go away. And they put out some ideas that we can get a pay raise. So even if your organizing effort fails, most of the time, employees get a little benefit out of it, whether it is pay in their pocket. Usually, when you go to talk to people, you look at somebody that's 30 years old, he wants money. When you look at somebody that's in that range from 30 to 45, he's basically looking to get better health care. Mm -hmm. And then somebody that's over 45, he's starting to look at retirement. So you can basically look at a group of people and figure out what they really want. Mm -hmm. But when you organize a place, they put together their own committee mm -hmm. and they poll the workers. What do you want to have in a contract? And we put that in writing. We do the boilerplate language and everything, and we try to put a contract together that has everything on the mandatory subjects of bargaining. And then the other things are the permissive subject of bargaining, which would be like, well, you know, if there's a retention pond in this place and it's got fish in it, get company to stock the pond. I mean, if it's a benefit to the employees, if actually they want to do something, that's a little nutty, but it's happened before. I've seen it happen in one of my negotiations. Well, I mean, is it like a megaphone for the workers to let management know um, these are our concerns? Um, and and again, uh, you, you know, we can talk all we all we want to. Is the data tells us that happy employees are productive employees, and productive employees um, are profitable. I mean, there is a, a finance side to it. If, if management would come in and say, okay, you know, we're going to pay you a fair wage, give you a safe place to work, give you the tools 
And most of all, we're going to empower you uh, to take your to enjoy your job. Uh, then your retention rates um, uh, or your um, uh, recid- what, what is the word? I'm, attrition is the word I'm looking for. You know, attrition is a killer. You, you, you don't want attrition. You, you don't want somebody who um, doesn't know your system coming in and, and having that startup cost in trans and in, in, uh, in training and learning how you do things. You really want to retain employees. And, and again, as I said, stop attrition, cutting down on your training uh, and increasing your speed of employees and valuing experience. And, and I think all of that is encapsulated um, in, in what locals do or the intent of locals. It's just sometimes, um, you know, management gets short-sighted. Um, um, it's economically better for them to have smaller inventories until there's a demand. Uh, again, I think that's what we're ha- we're finding now that businesses were short-sighted in their own inventories, and it increased demand, uh, caused prices to go up, and you know, yada yada yada. We go down the slope. But uh, again, um, collective bargaining, I-, I think, puts an emphasis on the worker uh, has value. Well, yeah, the the worker does the basic cost of doing business, the biggest cost of doing business for an employer is labor. That means, he, you know, what he's got to pay his workers to get the job done. And my industry is basically heavy industry. You know, the boilermakers do so much stuff. We build ships. We build submarines for the Navy. But when the AFL and the CIO merged in the 50s, we had the American Federation of Labor. That was a pure trade union thing. Then the CIO was a Congress of Industrial Organizations. When they merged, then, like me, I get to end up with shops. We make Spalding golf balls. We make Spalding equipment in Chicopee, Massachusetts. We made... Um, uh, the golf clubs in uh, Sandersville, Georgia. Um, I can't remember the name of the company because they went out of business because the uh, the Chinese companies beat them out with Big Bertha golf clubs. Oh, but wow. We're just so different. But the idea was the employees get to say, these are the things that we want in our contract, not just wages, hours, and working conditions, but the other things that make the workplace better. With one company that I negotiated contract with every year, they would do a survey of all the employees and say, you guys want to come in an hour earlier in the summertime to beat the heat. And every year for 20 years before the union came, they always voted to do this. Well, when the union came in, the employer doesn't get to do that anymore. He doesn't get to do the poll of the employees. The union reps do that. Come to find out, there was only like 15% of the people wanted to come in that extra hour early. Now, this has been going on for 20 years. I would tend to think that they lied to the employees about that because they didn't want to come in earlier. And in one place in particular, what happened that some employees lost their job because they got to work by riding public transportation. 
and bringing them in an hour earlier, public transportation didn't run at 5 a.m. So they did act, they would take actions. They were arbitrary because they wanted to do this. It affected the employees. Some people lost their jobs because they couldn't get to work on time. So that's another benefit because if you talk to the employees and you actually do a poll, you're getting a true evaluation of what they want, not just what the supervision says. Oh, God, you guys voted not to do this. So well, em employees are management's customer. Yes, that's a good and, way to put it. And it, that you need to take care of the customer. And uh, I mean, again, you know, employees is a wage is benefits. I, I don't know what the rule is now, but back when I used to figure that, uh, that the working was 20 cents on the dollar would go to benefits. And so you had to put that in your budget. If you were going to pay them a dollar, you had to put a dollar 20 in to cover the benefits you were going to have to do. Um, and I, I, I just think people want to be treated fairly and in a collective bargaining situation, you know, again, I, I used this term earlier, it levels the playing field. I mean, we, we have a lot of issues in, in labor now, um, in, in the hospital industry that, uh, I mean, this is an industry that's bursting at its seams and, um, and it's not, um, heavily unionized. Is, is it still 9% of the workforce is in organized labor? 13%, I 13%. think, right now. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, people talk, well, unions killed everything. It was hard to do from 13%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, God bless us all that we were able to do that much damage from 13%. Well, back, way back in the 40s when unions were all over the place and everything was getting organized and probably the representation was in the 30% back then. Employers discovered real quick that we can stop some of this union organizing if we start throwing a bone to the employees. So but back then, employees did not get health care. They didn't get paid vacations a lot. Remember back in the 30s and 40s, people were working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And when labor got involved and started negotiating these contracts, we changed the standard to be a five-day work week in eight hours a day. Yeah. We've got the laws now that say anything after eight hours is time and a half. Yeah. Unless you're a, a, a white-collar worker, then you're on a salary, and so those yeah. don't apply. Yeah, well, everything but, has an option. But employers found out we've got to do some things to stop this because the unions are getting too much power. The employees, we don't want them to have a voice in how we run things. So they start throwing them a bone, give them this and that. Whatever it is that the employees were really wanting, they sort of usurped the idea, well, we'll give them some things. And that worked fine up until the 60s. And some things changed in the 60s where everybody got greedy. Back during that time, a CEO of a company was making 45 to 50 times what the guy on the floor worked. Now they're making 4,000 times what the employee on the floor work is making. That's just ridiculous. I mean, somebody's well, not that important to a company to make that much money. 
Well, you know, is it the tax code? Um, you know, it that, that we have a, a mutual story of a um, individual owned a company, sold it, and sold it for millions and millions of dollars. And his accountants told him, well, you know, the government's going to get all this and unless you figure something out. And he figured out, well, I'll just give this money to my employees. And it, it, I, I, I don't know his motivation because uh, he, he was very business and very professional, could very well have been benevolent, but I don't think he wanted the government getting his money. There are and, some great employers out there. And but, so he put that money back into the business and back into the employees that, you know, who are the face of your business. The front line holds your brand. And, you know, they're the ones that will offend or excite someone. Uh, I joke with people that you want to know what's going on in a business, ask someone on the front line uh, because they're customer facing. And a customer will tell you what they want and what they don't want. And, and again, as I said earlier, that the employee is the manager's customer. That um, in collective bargaining uh, allows us to reasonably offer this is what we like and this is what you want to do. And, um, you know, hopefully constructive bargaining it, I- is a, a good word. I negotiated a contract one time where the employees didn't want a nickel in pay. They wanted everything to go to health care because that's when health care in the early 90s, the cost of health care started to climb. And most companies, you pay a part and the company pays a part of your health care. And that was the thing. They decided it was more important for them to get health care than it was to get a, a, a quarter in their paycheck. Mm-hmm. So that gave the employees the option. I mean, everyone has got their individual case of what's going on. But if you have it where you can do it collectively and go to the company and say, these are the things that mm-hmm. we want in the contract, mm-hmm. the company gets a valid mm-hmm. idea of what's going on. And they're seeing what they can do to in rich their employees to make them better employees Mm -hmm. well i mean you you invest and uh, and i've i've talked about this scenario you you say okay we have a veteran that's um making 12 dollars an hour and they've been with us for 10 years and um they know our system they know our product and they're very fast but i can get a green kid in here for eight dollars and you look at it and say, well, look at all the money we're saving by bringing the green kid in. But the, the issue is, is that you lost all that money in training when, when you trained that employee. And they trained working on your system. And it will take a while for that green person to come up to speed and the core uh, experienced workers are, are the ones that uh, you know have a very high rate of return in the sense of their speed and their understanding of the issue and sometimes we have to get in a in a in a collective bargaining situation whether it's a guild or a union or a committee uh, you know whatever it is but um, again it levels the playing field i think well, one other thing you get in collective bargaining is 
you get the right to file grievances and have them heard in however many steps you put into the process. But if you can't reach a resolution with the company, you can go to arbitration where a federal mediator or somebody that's been blessed by the federal mediation board can come in and decide to do this. Arbitrators come in and they read the contract. They see your part. They see the company's part and they render a decision which becomes the administrative law of the land. They have to go back and do their research to see if these issues had been addressed before. How do we figure it out? So you get a a step before it was, you do it my way or it's the highway. That's the way it is if you don't have a union. But if you've got a grievance procedure, which all contracts have a grievance procedure, you get a way to adjudicate what the problem is, what you're having. If a supervisor says, you've got to come to work tomorrow and it's your religious holiday, well, there's case law that says maybe you don't have to do that. It's not, a, it's not black and white. But if the company says you're going to come in or we're going to fire you, you make that choice. What do you do? But if you don't go to work and they do fire you, you've got a case to go to arbitration. And if you win at arbitration, you can be put back to work with back pay. But these are the things that you get with a contract that, you know, collective bargaining does many, many things for the employees and the workforce as a whole. It stops the company from taking arbitrary uh, steps that may not work for anybody except mm-hmm. for the company. And we're just scratching the surface this week and also running out of time. Uh, we encourage you to take a look at uh, the resources on collective bargaining. Just thought it might be a nice topic of, of interest. Uh, again, we are at two old goats at gmail.com, two old goats at Facebook, and at a podcast near you. Thanks for spending time with us this week. I'm Bill Gray. And John Chapman.